Uh, We're going to be in John. We're going to start in John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, open with me to John 20. There's Bibles back there for you if you need one. John 20, uh, relatively famous, a famous story in the New Testament. I'll give you a second just to get there. John 20. I'm going to jump right in. This is now Thomas, who was one of the 12, meaning one of the 12 disciples, called the twin. He was not with them, meaning he was not with the other disciples when Jesus came in after the resurrection. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see uh, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, Scripture says, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas responded. Thomas did this, and he responds to him. He says, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have seen me, who have not seen me, and yet still believe. And John writes that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us peace. God, that you are alive and well and you speak to us. You are there to comfort us. And God, you open your hands and your side to us. So we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're beginning a, what will likely be a six or seven week series on um, struggling to believe about it, our goal for this series the idea is that we want to address head-on the most common objections to the Christian faith and to the scripture Christian scriptures and to the person and work of Jesus so on the one hand we want to address those who are here and there are many who are here I know who are not believers who are asking hard questions I'm so thankful that you're here I'm, I'm so thankful that you're doing the honest intellectual work of actually trying to get a real sense of something for yourself before you make a decision. So the goal for one is to address those common questions that so many people are asking about the Bible and about Jesus. And then secondly, for those of us who are in the room who do believe, to encourage us, to confirm in us the faith that we embrace. And the reality is that that many of us, at whatever stage of life, in whatever different area, sometimes struggle to believe. We may not want to be honest about that, but that's just the way it is. And there's reason to believe, and we're going to get into those reasons to believe. The, the, the Bible, it's important to know, the Bible does not cower at our questions regarding Jesus. Science and history and religion are not in opposition to one another, but support the Christian faith. And so I pray for all of us. I pray that this is a encouraging time. I pray this is a challenging time. I pray that that this would be an encouragement to those who are on the road to questioning the veracity of the Christian message. Maybe for some of you, it just seems like nonsense. The miracles and all the stuff and the walking on water, how could it be? But I also pray it's an encouragement to those of us who 
have embraced the Christian faith, but yet still sometimes struggle with our own hard questions. And let me just say a quick word about doubt. Everyone has doubts. Everyone has doubts. And it's okay. Doubts are okay. Doubt, doubt is universal, right? That's something that all of us experience. Some of us, we get in, in very dark moments. Things start to feel very shaky. We get very unsure because something's falling apart in our life. Or maybe we just, we, we've read a, a new book and we've thought, huh, that really makes me ask some hard questions. And we begin to doubt. Doubt is universal. For believers, even, doubt comes with the territory. And struggling to believe in the person and work of Jesus is not a uniquely modern problem. It's not that the ancients accept it easily, but we moderns having the benefit of of history and science, and and we can look back and see uh, with more skepticism that those stories are really just silly. Doubt is not a modern problem. Even the ancients, even Jesus' own disciples, you remember? Even Jesus' own disciples who were there with them, who were on the ground with them, many times throughout the New Testament, it says even they would doubt. Even some would walk away. Even, even after his crucifixion, they scattered. Doubt is part of it for you. Many, many of the famed Christian writers or theologians or ministers or missionaries um, have struggled deeply to believe. Most of you guys know that. They struggle deeply to believe before being convinced themselves, usually through a combination of both um, hard evidence and also their own personal experience with God. I mean, you can think from from Doubting Thomas that we just read, from the Apostle Paul to C.S. Lewis, and we could go on and on and on and on. Very, very capable, very smart men and women who have asked very difficult questions of the text and of the message and of the person have finally come in assessing the data and experiencing it for themselves existentially. They say, yes, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. And so if you're asking hard questions this morning of the faith, you're in good company, and I hope you know that. And I hope that you continue to do it. I I tell my kids um, that same thing. I I wrote... um, I only have two teenagers now, but I wrote Jonas a letter on his 13th birthday. I wrote Betty a letter on her 13th birthday. And Henry, you got a letter coming on your 13th birthday, right? Um, Pretty lengthy letter, just trying to lay out for them my prayers and uh, some challenges and some, you know, things to consider to avoid the pitfalls that are so common for teenagers. And I I remember as I was putting the sermon together, I wrote in that letter to my 13-year-old son, and I'll just read you the quote. Um, I told him that, you may question your faith. You may question God's love. You may question so many things. And that's okay. In fact, it's, it's more than okay. It's expected. I'm expecting you to question your faith. I'm expecting you to, to press in hard. I, I wrote this. I said, I said, just know you are not alone. God is there. God is not silent. Your mother and I are here. Ask the hard questions. Make your faith your own. And some of us had to do that, right? Some of us grew up in a Christian family. We grew up in a Christian home. But there came a point, there came a sort of crisis moment where we had to ask ourselves, do we really believe all this? Is this really where we're going to stake our flag? Is this who we are? And we had to come through that crisis. We had to make our belief your own. I wrote to Jonas, personal investigation is essential to true and lasting faith. 
We can't hold to our parents' faith for long. There's just too much opposition. There's too many challenges. And so as I say to my kids, I say to the church here that, that press in, investigate, ask the hard questions, make your faith your own. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For my money, doubt is better than indifference any day, right? That's the worst. And so I want to begin this series by addressing um, what I think is the most critical question when we come to this idea of belief in Christ. The most critical question is, can we trust the Bible? It's pretty fundamental, right? Can we really trust the words that have been passed down to us in the Scripture? When we, because when we settle this issue of the trustworthiness of Scripture, then we settle many of the issues surrounding our struggle to believe. If we can believe that this is authentic and this is authoritative, this is an important work for us, then everything else quickly falls into place. Not everything, but it begins to create a frame for us to understand our faith. And so, though we will go deeper into questions of, in this series, we'll go deeper into questions of, uh, suffering. Why is there evil in the world? Why does uh, God allow bad things to happen? Or if would there even be a God if these things are happening in the world? We'll, we'll address questions of, of heaven and hell. We'll address questions of um, Christian hypocrisy. We're going to dive deeper into all of those issues. Um, but the central question, can we trust the Bible, is at the heart of embracing or rejecting the Christian message. And so questions about the validity of Scripture uh, usually revolve around these three primary issues. And I'll have these on the screen. Number one, are the stories in the Bible legends? Or are the stories in the Bible lies? Or are the stories in the Bible lost in translation? Meaning that whatever was written uh, a couple thousand years ago aren't what we are using now. Because of the copies of copies and the translations from one language to another and one culture to another. So I feel like as I've, as I've been studying and reading um, and, and looking through those books that are even opposing the Christian message, these are sort of the three main categories. Are they legends? Can we even really believe them? Were they even meant to be read as true? Or are they outright lies? Is this some elaborate hoax? Or did we somehow end up with the wrong message altogether? They were lost in translation. And so for our purposes, I'm going to focus on the reliability of the Gospels themselves, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that begin the New Testament. And they serve, the reason why is because they serve as our most important source on the life and teachings of Jesus. They're our most important source. And it makes sense to start with the Gospels because if the Gospels aren't trustworthy... If the Gospels aren't trustworthy, if Jesus is a liar, if these books were really written as legend, if the Gospels aren't trustworthy, then we can dismiss the rest of the New Testament. We can't dismiss the New Testament. Don't misunderstand me. We can't dismiss, no one can dismiss the New Testament as a, a absolutely critical, maybe the most critical work ever created in the ancient world. You can't dismiss it as that. You have to come to terms with the power of Scripture, whether you believe the contents or not. But we can dismiss it if the Gospels are false, if the Gospels aren't trustworthy, if the Gospels aren't reliable, then we can dismiss it as authoritative over our lives. If it's just not true, then what bearing does it have on me? If Jesus isn't who He said He was, if, if His claims are, are delusional or are false... 
It doesn't have ultimate authority in my life. So the questions are, are the Gospels legends, are they lies, or are they lost in translation? Can we trust the Bible? And we'll likely only get through this first question this morning. Number one, are the Gospels legends? And let me give you a little bit of disclaimer up front that this may feel, um, it, it may feel a little information heavy for a sermon. I hope it doesn't feel too luxury, but there is a lot of information here, um, and I hope that it's powerful for you. Um, but the goal of this sermon and the goal of this sermon series is the same as our goal for every sermon, which is to produce worship in us. I hope that produces worship in you. As with, as with doubting Thomas in the Gospels, he had to see Jesus' scars. He said literally, and this is, this is a pretty powerful image, I want to put my finger in the nail hole. I want to put my finger, I may have a picture even of this. I want to put my finger in your side, Jesus. And in fact, he goes so far as to say, if I, if I can't do that, if I can't prove it by the evidence, I'll never believe. He wanted to see the proof. He wanted to touch himself, the evidence of Jesus' death. And he did that. He had to do that. He had to go through that experience for him to fully worship God, to fully worship Jesus as Lord and God over him. Evidence, don't you see? Evidence produces worship. It produces worship for us, and that's the whole goal. So I pray that not only our minds would respond to this sermon, but also our hearts would respond in worship as we explore this evidence of the reliability of the Bible. So here's number one. Are the Gospels legends? Are the Gospel legends? This is actually one of the most common objections uh, to the Christian faith. The stories in the New Testament, they're not historical, they're mythical, right? They're, they're, they weren't meant to be read as history. They were meant to be read as myth, as legend. They just didn't happen the way it reads. The, the miracles and the healings and the resurrection, all of that stuff, it just didn't happen. Now, some would say that the Gospels were never meant to be read as historical documents, and others would say that they were actually fabrications um, to promote a particular religious movement, the movement of early Christianity after the death of Jesus. But either way, the question is, are the Gospels legends and not ultimately true? Let me give you just a couple reasons here. Uh, and, and these two subpoints are, are borrowed from Tim Keller's book, There Reason for God. I really hope that you dig into that. I pray that you would read that book. And, and there will be Bible studies around. You can look on our website um, for Bibles that will be going through this study. So if you're, if you're wanting to go deeper into these questions, then email the church or look on our website and we'll get you connected. So here are two points. Number one, the books were just written too early. The books were written too early to be legends, and we'll talk about why. And the books include far too much detail to be legends in the ancient world. Now, those may seem like two relatively simple points, but I can assure you those are very important points as you build this argument that the Bible is trustworthy. This is mentioned in almost every source on the reliability of the Bible. And so to put it another way, the Gospels could have easily been refuted by early eyewitnesses, Okay. The Gospels could have easily been refuted by early eyewitnesses, especially the enemies of the church, right? The church had all kinds of enemies, political enemies, religious enemies, powerful enemies. This could have been refuted by early eyewitnesses, the enemies of the church, and could have easily been disproven by evidence in the first century, but it never was. It never was, and that's astounding. 
The Gospels were written too early to be legends. All of the Gospels were written uh, at most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. That's not much, right? Were written 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters were written no more than 15 or 20 years after Jesus' death. These are early documents. These are documents written right on the heels of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And there's a mountain of evidence to support this. Come back next week, part two of this sermon. Can we trust the Bible? There's more to it. Luke writes this in, in Luke chapter 1. I don't know that I have this on the screen, but if you want to jump in with me, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He just makes this comment. And Luke, again, he's a physician. He's known in the area. He says, Inasmuch as, have, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that happened, of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the very beginning, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have de- been delivered to them, de- uh, delivered to us. It seemed good, good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write for us an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, Luke is saying, I'm writing this based on eyewitnesses. This is important because he's pointing to eyewitnesses that would have still been alive when this book was written. In Mark chapter 15, in fact, I I, I would like you to turn here, but I have it on the screen. Mark chapter 15, we see this perfect example of both eyewitnesses and the details of this early document. In Mark chapter 15, it feels like a throwaway comment, but listen to this. I love hearing the, the pages turn because I know you're actually going and looking at your Bible. That's a good sign. That's a good shine, church. Well done. Mark chapter 15. I'll start in verse 21. It says, And they compelled a passerby. So this is while Jesus is making his way to the cross. This is on the, the sort of stations of the cross that we did last Holy Week. He's making his way to the cross. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him. They divided his garments. They, they cast lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now that, for many of you, as you read it, you may think, okay, so what? There, there is so much there. There is so much in this very short passage in terms of detail about the, evident, the, the situation that's actually happening there. But notice these throwaway comments. Notice the throwaway comment, for example, about Simon of Cyrene. It mentions his kids by name. It mentions his, it's as though there, there's a theologian and historian, Richard Bachman, who's at Cambridge, he's still alive, wrote this very powerful book on the eyewitnesses uh, of, of Jesus. And he talks about when, the, when ancient documents name drop, like that. It's like a footnote for the early documents. It's as though he's saying, okay, you know, it, not only is Simon Cyrene around, but here are his kids' names, Alexander and Rufus. Go talk to those guys. They're still around. You can, you can verify what's happening. These, are, these name drops we see all throughout Scripture. He even mentions the time of day. He mentions how the guards would roll dice and gather lots for Jesus' clothes. This is very, very specific, and it's written very, very early. 
Paul too, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. This is just 20 years after Jesus' death. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, and then on the third day according to Scripture was raised. And then he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still, still living. You see what he's doing there. These documents were written so close to the events described that they're, they're laying these, this trail of crumbs to say, you can go back. You can talk to these people. Here are all the details. Here are all the things that are going on. One writer says the New Testament documents could not say that Jesus was crucified and when thousands of people were still alive who knew whether he was or not. If there had not been a burial, if there had not been an empty tomb, if there had not been an appearance after his death, then those public documents that were circulating all over, as those documents claimed he had been, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground in the ancient world. It just wouldn't be tenable, obviously. It would have been impossible for Christianity to have gained widespread support uh, if this critical early historical claims were bluntly contradicted by numerous witnesses who were still alive as they were being written. The documents are just too early. They're written too early. I have this on the slide behind me, uh, again from Keller's book, Reason for God. It's not only Christ's supporters, so think about this, church. It's not only Christ's supporters who were alive during this time. There were also still alive bystanders, officials, and even opponents who had actually heard Jesus teach, who had seen his actions, who'd watched him die. They would have been especially ready to challenge any accounts that were fabricated, Right? They actually had reason to put this thing to bed for a highly altered, fictionalized account of an event to take hold in the public imagination. It is necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and their grandchildren be long dead. You just can't pull off a hoax like this in a relatively small part of the world where thousands and thousands of people are still alive when the events happened. In addition to the Gospels being written too early to be legends, they also contain too many details to be legends. And I'll tell you why. That, that throughout the Gospels, and, and you know this if you've read through the Gospels, there's all kinds of random details that the writers include. So, so John will talk about um, that when they went out in the boat, that they were, they were 100 yards from the, from the shore. It's not even relevant, but he just mentioned that. They were, we were about 100 yards from the shore. And when, when they were out there on the water, they caught 153 fish. Who cares, right? Mark will talk about specifically the position that Jesus was in, where he was out on a boat, what he was sleeping on. There's names of the many irrelevant characters, even very irrelevant characters, connected only to secondary or tertiary characters in the Bible. There's specific times of day mentioned in the Bible. And you've seen this, right? If you've gone through the Bible, you see that there are all these weird details that seem somewhat irrelevant, seem in many ways entirely irrelevant to the actual story being told. Now, you may think, that if you were writing fiction, that's exactly what you would do, right? Because that's what modern fiction does. Modern fiction will drop these, these subtle hints, these details. They may actually be irre irrelevant, but they provide the sort of atmosphere of realism, right? 
When you see something specific, when you see the details, when it talks about how the light came in the window or the color of the sky or the color of this outfit or the time of day that this happened, all of those provide a kind of air of realism to modern fiction. But that's just not how it was done in the ancient world. That's not at all how it was done in the ancient world. That's not how they developed their fiction. That's how they reported the news. And this is consistent in very, 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 very many historical ancient documents. C.S. Lewis, who was a world-class literary critic at both Oxford and Cambridge, he writes this. He says, I have been reading poems and romances and vision vision literature. And he was a staunch uh, opponent to the Christian message. I have been reading poems and romance and vision literature and legends and myth all of my life. I know what they're like. I know that none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, this is news, this is historical fact, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessor or known successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. It just it would stand alone completely among all ancient documents of fiction. What it looks exactly like in all other ancient documents is news. It looks like news. One writer put it this way, ancient fiction was nothing like modern fiction. Modern fiction is realistic. It contains details and dialogues. It reads like an eyewitness account. This genre of fiction, however, only developed within the last 300 years. This isn't 2,000 years old. In ancient times, romances, epics, and legends were high and remote. Details were spare and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. This is why when reading Beowulf or the Iliad, you don't see characters noticing the rain or falling asleep with a sigh. They're simply written differently. They contain too many details to be legend. The only explanation for why an ancient writer would mention the details of the number of fish that Jesus caught or the distance of the boat to the shore or or the specific time of day or the name of a minor character's child without any other context is because he was reporting news. It's because this was so fresh in the minds of the eyewitnesses who were there. And not only that, not only were, were these stories uh, contained so, so many details and written by eyewitnesses, uh, and during the time when many thousands of eyewitnesses would still be around, they were told and circulated among groups of individuals, huge groups of individuals living during that time, during, while the events were happening. It made it impossible to purport a false narrative. Many of the specific individuals and places, you, you may not know this, many of the specific um, uh, places and officials and titles and locations, very many of these have already been confirmed by archaeological evidence. I mean, every, it seems like every month you can turn on the news and you read some article about, oh, they just discovered this new thing in Israel that was pointing back to this thing that King David said or this thing that Paul mentioned. I mean, it, it happens all the time, literally. I feel like I see an article monthly of some additional confirmation, archaeological evidence that confirms the historicity of the Bible. Those are um, things that include uh, Lysanias the Tetrarch in Luke chapter 3 or Erastus the treasurer of Corinth. Who would, who would think to add a fictional account of the treasurer of a city unless it were just simply true and that truth has been confirmed by archaeological evidence? 
or the census in Luke 1. All of that happened. And not only is uh, archaeology backing up this story that's laid out in the New Testament, even, even other ancient writers who were there on the ground day of, uh, writers like Josephus and uh, Tacitus, they are all confirming the historicity of the Bible. Even if they are opponents of Christ, they are not saying, this is legend. The gospel simply include too much detail confirmed by too much archaeological evidence, contemporary ancient historians to possibly, to reasonably be considered as fiction. In his book, Why Trust the Bible, Greg Gilbert wrote this, it's interesting that we have no record of anyone ever saying these books were meant to be read as legends or that these stories were a giant hoax. The point becomes even stronger when you realize even the people who had the biggest stake in putting an end to Christianity didn't deny that Jesus really did and said the things the biblical authors claimed he said and did. They simply accused him of being a liar or being wrong. These books are not legends. But the question is, and we'll tackle this next week, are they lies? Are they lies? Is that possible? This is, a, this is, a, this is part one of a two-part sermon series on the reliability of the Gospels. And and, and next week we'll ask the question, if these books aren't legends, are they lies or could they have been lost in translation? There are thousands and thousands of um, manuscript evidence. We'll look at a mountain of evidence confirming that they are actual historical documents. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, some of you may be here who are Christian you are like, yeah, pastor, I knew it. Let me just encourage you, in these kinds of discussions, Our posture should be gentle, should be patient, should be humble with those asking questions. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with those struggling to believe. And if you are are a non-believer here this morning, if you're still a skeptic here this morning, I want to challenge you the same way. Be gentle. Be patient. Be humble. If, If there is a God, He's got nothing to prove to you. Submit yourself to him. Be humble as you ask questions, as you read the works that tell his story. Bring your doubts to God. Consider the evidence, even as it builds in the coming weeks. And it's important for us all to remember, we're not trying to win an argument here. Right? So many of these conversations regarding apologetics or uh, the validity of Christianity or whatever, so many of those turn into a sort of us-against-them dynamic. We're not trying to win an argument here, church. I hope that you're not trying to win an argument. The goal is not merely to point to uh, historical facts and historical evidence or archaeological data. The whole point is to point to a person, to point to Jesus, to, as Thomas did, to, to touch him, to see him, to believe in him, to confess that Jesus is Lord. You're, we, are, we are pointing people to the person, the only one who can make sense of this world. And so I pray that that's what we do. But belief in Jesus is, it not only needs to be rationalized, it also needs to be experienced. It does need to be rationalized, but it also needs to be experienced. Some of you have, maybe some of you can, uh, can concede to all of the truths, all of the historical evidence, but it still has never sunk down into your heart. 
it's never transformed you. Let me just challenge you. If, if Jesus really did the things that he did, if he really said what he said as the New Testament writers added it, included it in their narrative, that means something for you. He's making demands on you. He's making demands on your life. He's making demands on my life. I'll close with this verse, Deuteronomy 4. I have it on the screen. This is both a challenge and an encouragement. If you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. If you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul.